Chapter 5 of The Golden Silence. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading done by Jules Harlock of Mississauga, Ontario, Canada. The Golden Silence by Alice Muriel and Charles Norris Williamson. Chapter 5 he walked past, and she looked up with a smile, but did not ask him to draw his chair near hers, though there was a vacant space. It was an absurd and far-fetched idea, but he could not help asking himself if it were possible that she had picked up any acquaintance on board, who had told her he was a marked man, a foolish fellow who had spoiled his life for a low-born unscrupulous woman's sake it was a morbid fancy he knew but he was morbid now and supposed that he should be for some time to come if not for the rest of his life he imagined a difference in the girl's manner maybe she had read that hateful interview in some paper when she was in london and now remembered having seen his photograph with margot lorenzi's he hated the thought, not because he deliberately wished to keep his engagement secret, but because the newspaper interview had made him seem a fool, and somehow he did not want to be despised by this dancing girl whom he should never see again after tomorrow. Just why her opinion of his character need matter to him, it was difficult to say, but there was something extraordinary about the girl. She did not seem in the least like other dancers he had met. He had not that feeling of comfortable comradeship with her that a man may feel with most unchaperoned traveling actresses, no matter how respectable. There was a sense of aloofness, as if she had been a young princess, in spite of her simple and friendly ways. Since it appeared that she had no intention of picking up the dropped threads of their conversation, Stephen thought of the smoking-room. But his wish to know whether she really had changed towards him became so pressing that he was impelled to speak again. It was an impulse unlike himself, at any rate the old self with which he was familiar, as with a friend or an intimate enemy. I hoped you would tell me the rest, he blurted out. The rest? That you are beginning to tell. The girl blushed. I was afraid afterwards you might have been bored or anyway surprised. You probably thought it very American of me to talk about my own affairs to a stranger. And it isn't, you know. I shouldn't like you to think Americans are less well brought up than other girls, just because I may do things that seem queer. I have to do them, and I'm quite different from others. You mustn't suppose I'm not. Stephen was curiously relieved. Suddenly he felt young and happy, as he used to feel before knowing Margot Lorenzi. I've never met a brilliantly successful person who was as modest as you, he said, laughing with pleasure. I was never less bored in my life. Will you talk to me again, and let me talk to you? I should like to ask your advice, she replied. That gave permission for Stephen to draw his chair near to hers. Have you had tea? he inquired, by way of a beginning. 
I'm too American to drink tea in the afternoon, she explained. It's only fashionable Americans who take it, and I'm not that kind, as you can see. I come from the country, or almost the country. Weren't you drawn into any of our little ways in London? He was working up to a certain point. I was too busy. I'm sure you weren't too busy for one thing, reading the papers for your notices. Victoria shook her head, smiling. There you're mistaken. The first morning after I danced at the Palace Theatre, I asked to see the papers they had in my boarding house, because I hoped so much that English people would like me, and I wanted to be a success. But afterwards, I didn't bother. I don't understand British politics. You see, how could I? And I hardly know any English people, so I wasn't very interested in their papers. Again, Stephen was relieved, but he felt driven by one of his strange new impulses to tell her his name and watch her face while he told it. Curiouser and curiouser, as our friend Alice would say, he laughed. No newspaper paragraphs and a boarding house instead of a fashionable hotel. What was your manager thinking about? I had no manager of my very own, said Victoria. I exploited myself. It costs less to do that. When people in America like my dancing, I got an offer from London, and I accepted it and made all the arrangement about going over. It was quite easy, you see, because there were only costumes to carry. My scenery is so simple, they either had it in the theaters or got something painted, and the statues in the studio scene, and the sculptor, needed very few rehearsals. In Paris they had only one. It was all I had time for after I arrived. The lighting wasn't difficult either, and though people told me at first there would be trouble unless I had my own man, there never was any, really. In my letters to the managers I gave the dates when I could come to their theatres, how long I could stay, and all they must do to get things ready. The Paris engagement was made only a little while beforehand. I wanted to pass through there, so I was glad to accept the offer and earn extra money which I thought I might need by and by. What a mercenary star, Stephen spoke teasingly, but in truth he could not make the girl out. She took the accusation with a smile. Yes, I am mercenary, I suppose. She confessed with unashamed frankness, but not entirely for myself. I shouldn't like to be that. I told you how I've been looking forward always to one end, and now, just when that end may be near, how foolish I should be to spend a cent on unnecessary things. Why, I'd have felt wicked living in an expensive hotel and keeping a maid, when I could be comfortable in a Bloomsbury boarding house on ten dollars a week, and the dresser in the theatre, who did everything very nicely, was delighted with a present of twenty dollars when my London engagement was over. No doubt she was, said Stephen, but I suppose you're thinking that I must have made lots of money, and that I'm sort of a little miserous, and so I have, and so I am. I earn seven hundred and fifty dollars a week. Isn't that a hundred and fifty pounds? For the six weeks, and I spend as little as possible, 
for I didn't get as large a salary as that in America. I engaged to dance for $300 a week there, which seemed perfectly wonderful to me at first, so I had to keep my contract, though other managers would have given me more. I wanted dreadfully to take their offers because I was in such a hurry to have enough money to begin my real work. But I knew I shouldn't be blessed in my undertaking if I acted dishonorably. Try as I might, I've only been able to save up $10,000, counting the salary in Paris and all. Would you say that was enough to bribe a person, if necessary? Two thousand of your pounds? It depends upon how rich the person is. I don't know how rich he is. Could an Arab be very rich? I dare say there are still some rich ones, but maybe riches aren't the same with them as with us. That fellow at lunch today looks as if he'd plenty of money to spend on embroideries. Yes, and he looks important, too, as if he might have traveled and known a great many people of all sorts. I wish it were proper for me to talk to him. Good heavens, why? asked Stephen, startled. It would be most improper. Yes, I'm afraid so, and I won't, of course, unless I get to know him in some way, went on Victoria. Not that there's any chance of such a thing. I should hope not, exclaimed Stephen, who was privately of opinion that there was only too good a chance if the girl showed the Arab even the faintest sign of willingness to know and be known. I've no right to ask it, of course, except that I'm much older than you and have seen more of the world. But do promise not to look at that nigger. I don't like his face. He isn't a nigger, objected Victoria. But if he were, it wouldn't matter, nor whether one liked his face or not. He might be able to help me. To help you? In Algiers? Yes, in the same way that you might be able to help me, or more, because he's an Arab and must know Arabs. Stephen forgot to press his request for her promise. How can I help you? He wanted to know. I'm not sure. Only you're going to Algiers. I always ask everybody to help, if there's the slightest chance they can. Stephen felt disappointed and chilled but she went on. I should hate you to think I gush to strangers and tell them all my affairs, just because I'm silly enough to love talking. I must talk to strangers. I must get help where I can. And you were kind the other night. Everybody is kind. Do you know many people in Algeria or Tunisia? Only one man. His name is Neville Kiard, and he lives in Algiers. My name is Stephen Knight. I've been wanting to tell you. I seem to have an unfair advantage knowing yours ever since Paris. He watched her face almost furtively, but no change came over it, no cloud in the blueness of her candid eyes. The name meant nothing to her. I'm sorry. It's hardly worth while my bothering you then. Stephen wished to be bothered. But Neville Kiard has lived in Algiers for eight winters or so, he said. He knows everybody, French and English, Arab too, very likely, if there are Arabs worth knowing. A bright color sprang to the girl's cheeks and turned her extreme prettiness into brilliant beauty. It seemed to Stephen that the name of Ray suited her, 
She was dazzling as sunshine. Oh, then I will tell you, if you will listen, she said. If I had as many ears as a spear of wheat, they'd all want to listen. His voice sounded young and eager. Please begin at the beginning, as the children say. Shall I really? But it's a long story. It begins when I was eight. All the better. It will be ten years long. I can skip a lot of things. When I was eight and my sister Sadie not quite eighteen, we were in Paris with my stepmother. My father had been dead just a year, but she was out of mourning. She wasn't old, only about thirty and handsome. She was jealous of Sadie, though, because Sadie was so much younger and fresher and because Sadie was beautiful. Oh, you can't imagine how beautiful. Yes, I can, said Stephen. You mean me to take that for a compliment. I know I'm quite pretty, but I'm nothing to Sadie. She was a great beauty, though with the same coloring I have, except that her eyes were brown and her hair a little more auburn. People turned to look after her in the street, and that made our stepmother angry. She wanted to be the one looked at. I knew even then she wouldn't have traveled with us. Only father had left her his money, on condition that she gave Sadie and me the best of educations, and allowed us a thousand dollars a year each, from the time our schooling was finished until we married. She had a good deal of influence over him, for he was ill a long time, and she was his nurse. That was the way they got acquainted, and she persuaded him to leave practically everything to her but she couldn't prevent his making some conditions. There was one which she hated. She was obliged to live in the same town with us, so when she wanted to go and enjoy herself in Paris after father died, she had to take us too. And she didn't care to shut Sadie up, because if Sadie couldn't be seen, she couldn't be married. And of course Mrs. Ray wanted her to be married. Then she would have no bother and no money to pay. I often heard Sadie say these things because she told me everything. She loved me a great deal and I adored her. My middle name is Cecilia and she was generally called Say. So she used to tell me that our secret names for each other must be Say and Seal. It made me feel very grown up to have her confide so much in me and never being with children at all gave me grown-up thoughts. Poor child, said Stephen. Oh, I was very happy. It was only after. But that isn't the way to tell the story. Our stepmother, whom we always called Mrs. Ray, never mother, liked officers, and we got acquainted with a good many French ones. They used to come to the flat where we lived. Some of them were introduced by our French governess, whose brother was in the army, but they brought others, and Sadie and Mrs. Ray went to parties together, though Mrs. Ray hated being chaperone. If poor Sadie were admired at a dinner or a dance, Mrs. Ray would be horrid all next day and say everything disagreeable she could think of. Then Sadie would cry when we were alone and tell me she was so miserable she would have to marry in self-defense. That made me cry too, but she promised to take me with her if she went away. 
when we had been in paris about two months sadie came to bed one night after a ball and waked me up we slept in the same room she was excited and looked like an angel i knew something had happened she told me she had met a wonderful man and everyone was fascinated with him she had heard of him before but this was the first time they'd seen each other he was in the french army she said a captain and older than most of the men she knew best but very handsome and rich as well as clever it was only at the last after she'd praised the man a great deal that she mentioned his having arab blood even then she hurried on to say his mother was a spanish woman and he had been partly educated in france and spoke perfect french and english too they had danced together and sadie had never met so interesting a man she thought he was like a hero of some romance and she told me i would see him because he begged mrs ray to be allowed to call he had asked sadie lots of questions and she told him even about me so he sent me his love she seemed to think i ought to be pleased but i wasn't i'd read the arabian nights with pictures and i knew arabs were dark people i didn't look down on them particularly but i couldn't bear to have say interested in an arab it didn't seem right for her somehow the girl stopped and apparently forgot to go on she had been speaking with short pauses as if she hardly realized that she was talking aloud her eyebrows drew together and she sighed stephen knew that some memory pressed heavily upon her but soon she began again he came next day he was handsome as sadie had said as handsome as the arab on board this ship but in a different way he looked noble and haughty yet as if he might be very selfish and hard perhaps he was about thirty-three or four and that seemed old to me then old even to sadie but she was fascinated he came often and she saw him at other houses everywhere she was going he would find out and go too that pleased her for he was an important man somehow and of good birth besides he was desperately in love even a child could see that he never took his eyes off sadie's face when she was with him it was as if he could eat her up and if she flirted a little with the real french officers to amuse herself or tease him it drove him half mad she liked that it was exciting she used to say and i forgot to tell you he wore european dress except for a fez no turban like this man's on the boat or i'm sure she couldn't have cared for him in the way she did he wouldn't have seemed possible for a christian girl a man in a turban you understand don't you yes i understand stephen said he understood too how violently such beauty as the girl described must have appealed to the dark man of the east the same coloring that i have victoria ray had said if he an englishman accustomed to the fair loveliness of his countrywoman were a little dazzled by the radiance of this girl what compelling influence must not the more beautiful sister have exercised upon the arab he made love to sadie in a fierce sort of way that carried her off her feet went on victoria 
She used to tell me things, he said, and Mrs. Ray did all she could to throw them together, because he was rich and lived a long way off, so she wouldn't have to do anything for Say if they were married or even see her again. He was only on leave in Paris. He was a spahi, stationed in Algiers, and he owned a house there. Ah, in Algiers. Stephen began to see light. Rather a lurid light. Yes, his name was Kasim ben Halim el-Sheikh el-Arab. Before he had known Sadie two weeks, he proposed. She took a little while to think it over, and I begged her to say no. But one day, when Mrs. Ray had been crosser and more horrid than usual, she said yes. Kasim ben Halim was Mohammedan, of course, but he and Sadie were married according to French law. They didn't go to church because he couldn't do that without showing disrespect to his own religion, but he promised he'd not try to change hers. Altogether, it seemed to Sadie that there was no reason why they shouldn't be as happy as a Catholic girl marrying a Protestant, or vice versa, and she hadn't any very strong convictions. She was a Christian, but she wasn't fond of going to church. And her promise that she'd take you away with her, Stephen reminded the girl. She would have kept it if Mrs. Ray had consented, though I'm sure Cassim didn't want me and only agreed to do what Sadie asked because he was so deep in love and feared to lose my sister if he refused her anything. But Mrs. Ray was afraid to let me go on account of the condition in father's will that she should keep me near her while I was being educated. There was an old friend of father's who threatened to try and upset the will for Sadie's sake and mine. So I suppose she thought he might succeed if she disobeyed father's instructions. It ended in Sadie and her husband going to Algiers without me, and Sadie cried, but she couldn't help being happy, because she was in love and very excited about the strange new life, which Cassim told her would be wonderful as some gorgeous dream of fairyland. He gave her quantities of jewelry and said they were nothing to what she should have when she was in her own home with him. She should be covered from head to foot with diamonds and pearls, rubies and emeralds, if she liked. And of course she would like, for she loved jewels, poor darling. Why do you say poor, said Stephen? Are you going to tell me the marriage wasn't a success? I don't know, answered the girl. I don't know any more about her than if Cassim ben Halim had really carried my sister off to fairyland and shut the door behind them. You see, I was only eight years old. I couldn't make my own life. After Sadie was married and taken to Algiers, my stepmother began to imagine herself in love with an American from Indiana, whom she met in Paris. He had an impressive sort of manner and made her think him rich and important. He was in business and had come over to rest, so he couldn't stay long abroad, and he urged Mrs. Ray to go back to America on the same ship with him. Of course she took me, and this Mr. Henry Potter told her about a boarding school where they taught quite little girls, not far from town where he lived. 
It had been a farmhouse once, and he said there were good teachers and good air. I can hear him saying it now. It was easy to persuade her, and she engaged rooms at a hotel in the town nearby, which was called Potterston, after Mr. Potter's grandfather. By and by they were married, but their marriage made no difference to me. It wasn't a bad little old-fashioned school, and I was as happy as I could be anywhere, parted from Sadie. There was an attic where I used to be allowed to sit on Saturdays, and think thoughts and write letters to my sister, and there was one corner where the sunlight came in through a tiny window shaped like a crescent, without any glass, which I named Algiers. I played that I went there to visit Sadie in the old Arab palace she wrote me about. It was a splendid play, but I felt lonely when I stopped playing it. I used to dance there, too, very softly in stocking feet, so nobody could hear. Dances she and I made up together out of stories she used to tell me. The shadow dance and the statue dance which you saw came out of those stories, and there are more you didn't see, which I do sometimes. A butterfly dance, the dance of the wheat, and two of the east, which were in stories she told me after we knew Cassim ben Halim. They are the dance of the smoke wreath, and the dance of the jewel and the rose. I could dance quite well even in those days, because I loved doing it. It came as natural to dance as to breathe, and Sadie had always encouraged me. So, when I was left alone, it made me think of her, to dance the dances of her stories. What about your teachers? Did they never find you out? asked Stephen. Yes, one of the young teachers did at last. Not in the attic, but when I was dancing for the big girls in their dormitory at night. They'd wake me up to get me to dance but she wasn't much older than the biggest of the big girls, so she laughed. I suppose I must have looked quaint dancing in my nightie, with my long red hair, and though we were all scolded afterwards, I was made to dance sometimes at the entertainments we gave when the school broke up in the summer. I was the youngest scholar, you see, and stayed through the vacations, so I was a kind of pet for the teachers. They were of one family, aunts and nieces, southern people, and of course good-natured. But all this isn't really in the story I want to tell you. The interesting parts about Sadie. For months I got letters from her, written from Algiers. At first they were like fairy tales, but by and by, quite soon, they stopped telling much about herself. It seemed as if Sadie were growing more and more reserved, or else as if she were tired of writing to me, and bored by it, almost as if she could hardly think of anything to say. Then the letter stopped altogether. I wrote and wrote, but no answer came. No answer ever came. You've never heard from your sister since then? The thing appeared incredible to Stephen. Never. Now you can guess what I've been growing up for, living for, all these years, to find her. But surely, Stephen argued, there must have been some way to, not any way that was in my power, till now. You see, I was helpless. 
I had no money, and I was a child. I'm not very old yet, but I'm older than my years because I had this thing to do. There I was, at a farmhouse school in the country, two miles out of Potterston, and you would think Potterston itself not much better than the backwoods, I'm sure. When I was fourteen, my stepmother died suddenly, leaving all the money which came from my father to her husband, except several thousand dollars to finish my education and give me a start in life. But Mr. Potter lost everything of his own and of mine, too, in some wild speculation about which the people in that part of Indiana went mad. The crash came a year ago, and the Mrs. Jennings, who kept the school, asked me to stay on as an under-teacher. They were sorry for me, and so kind. But even if nothing had happened, I should have left then, for I felt old enough to set about my real work. Oh, I see you think I might have got at my sister before. Somehow, but I couldn't, indeed. I tried everything. Not only did I write and write, but I begged the Mrs. Jennings to help, and the minister of the church, where we went on Sundays. The Mrs. Jennings told the girls' parents and relations whenever they came to visit, and they all promised, if they ever went to Algiers, they would look for my sister's husband, Captain Kasim ben Halim of the Spahis. But they weren't the sort of people who ever do go such journeys. And the minister wrote to the American consul in Algiers for me, but the only answer was that Kasim ben Halim had disappeared. It seemed not even to be known that he had an American wife. Your stepmother ought to have gone herself, said Stephen. Oh, ought? I very seldom saw my stepmother after she married Mr. Potter. Though she lived so near, she never asked me to her house, and only came to call at the school once or twice a year, for form's sake. But I ran away one evening and begged her to go and find Sadie. She said it was nonsense, that if Sadie hadn't wanted to drop us, she would have kept on writing, or else she was dead. But don't you think I should have known if Sadie were dead? By instinct, you mean, telepathy or something of that sort. I don't know what I mean, but I should have known. I should have felt her death, like a string snapping in my heart. Instead, I heard her calling to me. I hear her always. She wants me. She needs me. I know it, and nothing could make me believe otherwise. So now you understand how, if anything were to be done, I had to do it myself. When I was quite little, I thought by the time I should be sixteen or seventeen and allowed to leave school, or old enough to run away if necessary, I'd have a little money of my own. But when my stepmother died, I felt sure I should never, never get anything from Mr. Potter. But that old friend you spoke of, who wanted to upset the will, couldn't he have done anything? Stephen asked. If he had lived, everything might have been different, but he was a very old man, and he died of pneumonia soon after Sadie married Kasim ben Halim. There was no one else to help. So, from the time I was fourteen, I knew that somehow I must make money. Without money, I could never hope to get to Algiers and find Sadie. 
even though she had disappeared from there it seemed to me that algiers would be the place to begin my search don't you think so yes algiers is the place to begin stephen echoed there ought to be a way of tracking her someone must know what became of a more or less important man such as your brother-in-law seems to have been it's incredible that he should have been able to vanish without leaving any trace he must have left a trace and though nobody else so far has found it i shall find it said the girl i did what i could before i asked everybody to help and when i got to new york last year i used to go to cook's office to inquire for people traveling to algiers then if i met any i would at once speak of my sister and give them my address to let me know if they should discover anything they always seemed interested and said they would really do their best but they must have failed or else they forgot no news ever came back it will be different with me now though i shall find sadie and if she isn't happy i shall bring her away with me if her husband is a bad man and if the reason he left algiers is because he lost his money as i sometimes think i may have to bribe him to let her go but i have enough money for everything i hope unless he's very greedy or there are difficulties i can't foresee in that case i shall dance again and make more money you know that's all there is about it one thing i do know is that you are wonderful said stephen his conscience pricking him because of certain unjust thoughts concerning this child which he had harbored since learning that she was a dancer you're the most wonderful girl i ever saw or heard of she laughed happily oh no i'm not wonderful at all it's funny you should think so perhaps none of the girls you know have had a big work to do i'm sure they never have said stephen and if they had they wouldn't have done it yes they would anybody would that is if they wanted to enough you can always do what you want to enough i wanted to do this with all my heart and soul so i knew i should find the way i just follow my instinct when people told me i was unreasonable and of course it led me right reason is only to depend on in scientific sorts of things isn't it the other is higher because instinct is your you isn't that what people say who preach new thought or whatever they call it asked stephen a lot of women i know had rather a craze about that two or three years ago they went to lectures given by an american man they raved over said he was too fascinating and they used their science to win at bridge i don't know whether it worked or not i never heard anyone talk of new thoughts said victoria i've just had my own thoughts about everything the attic at school was a lovely place to think thoughts in wonderful ones always came to me if i called to them thoughts all glittering like angels they seem to bring me new ideas about things i've been born knowing beautiful things which i feel somehow have been handed down to me in my blood why that's the way my friends used to talk about waking their race consciousness but it only led to bridge with them well it's led me from potterston here said victoria and it will lead me on to the end wherever that may be 
I'm sure. Perhaps it will lead me far, far off into that mysterious golden silence, where in dreams I often see Sadie watching for me, the strangest dream place, and I've no idea where it is, but I shall find out if she really is there. What supreme confidence you have in your star, Stephen exclaimed, admiringly and half enviously. Of course, haven't you, in yours? I have no star. She turned her eyes to his, quickly as if grieved, and in his eyes she saw the shadow of hopelessness, which was there to see, and could not be hidden from a clear gaze. I'm sorry, she said simply. I don't know how I could have lived without mine. I walk in its light, as if in a path, but yours must be somewhere in the sky, and you can find it if you want to very much. He could have found two in her eyes just then, but such stars were not for him. Perhaps I don't deserve a star, he said. I'm sure you do. You are the kind that does, the girl comforted him. Do have a star. It would only make me unhappy, because I mightn't be able to walk in its light as you do. It would make you very happy as mine does me. I'm always happy because the light helps me to do things. It helped me to dance. It helped me to succeed. Tell me about your dancing, said Stephen, vaguely anxious to change the subject and escape from thoughts of Margot, the only star of his future. I should like to hear how you began, if you don't mind. That's kind of you, replied Victoria gratefully. He laughed. Kind? Why, it's nothing of a story. Luckily, I'd always danced, so when I was fourteen and began to think I should never have any money of my own after all, I saw that dancing would be my best way of earning it, as that was the one thing I could do very well. Afterwards, I worked in real earnest, always up in the attic, where I used to study the Arabic language too, study it very hard and no one knew what I was doing or what was in my head, till last year when I told the oldest Miss Jennings that I couldn't be a teacher, that I must leave school and go to New York. What did she say? She said I was crazy. So did they all. They got the minister to come and argue with me, and he was dreadfully opposed to my wishes at first. But after we talked a while, he came round to my way. How did you persuade him to that point of view? Stephen catechized her, wondering always. I hardly know. I just told him how I felt about everything. Oh, and I danced. By Jove, what effect had that on him? He clapped his hands and said it was a good dance, quite different from what he expected. He didn't think it would do anyone harm to see and he gave me a sort of lecture about how I ought to behave if I became a dancer. It was easy to follow his advice, because none of the bad things he feared might happen to me ever did. Your star protected you. Of course, there was a little trouble about money at first, because I hadn't any, but I had a few things, a watch that had been my mother's and her engagement ring, they were Sadie's, but she left them both for me when she went away, and a queer kind of brooch Cassim ben Halim gave me one day, out of a lovely mother-of-pearl box 
he brought full of jewels for Sadie when they were engaged. See, I have the brooch on now, for I wouldn't sell the things. I went to a shop in Potterston and asked the man to lend me fifty dollars on them all. So he did. It was very good of him. You seem to consider everybody you meet kind and good, Stephen said. Yes, they almost always have been so to me. If you believe people are going to be good, it makes them good, unless they are very bad indeed. Perhaps Stephen would not for a great deal have tried to undermine her confidence in her fellow beings, and such was the power of the girl's personality, that for a moment he was half inclined to feel she might be right. Who could tell? Maybe he had not believed enough in Margot. He looked with interest at the brooch of which Miss Ray spoke, a curiously wrought, flattened ring of dull gold, with a pin in the middle which pierced and fastened her chiffon veil on her breast. Round the edge, irregularly shaped pearls alternated with roughly cut emeralds, and there was a barbaric beauty in both workmanship and color. "'What happened when you got to your journey's end?' he went on, fearing to go astray on that subject of the world's goodness, which was a sore point with him lately. "'Did you know anybody in New York?' nobody but i asked the driver of a cab if he could take me to a respectable theatrical boarding-house and he said he could so i told him to drive me there i engaged a wee back room at the top of the house and paid a week in advance the boarders weren't very successful people poor things for it was a cheap boarding-house it had to be for me but they all knew which were the best theatres and managers, and they were interested when they heard I'd come to try and get a chance to be a dancer. They were afraid it wasn't much use, but the same evening they changed their minds and gave me lots of good advice. You danced for them? Yes, in such a stuffy parlour, smelling of gas and dust, and there were holes in the carpet it was difficult not to step into. A dear old man without any hair, who was on what he called the variety stage, advised me to go and try to see Mr. Charles Norman, a fearfully important person, so important that even I had heard of him away out in Indiana. I did try, day after day, but he was too important to be got at. I wouldn't be discouraged, though. I knew Mr. Norman must come to the theatre sometimes. So I bought a photograph in order to recognize him, and one day when he passed me, going in, I screwed up my courage and spoke. I said I'd been waiting for days and days. At first he scowled, and I think meant to be cross, but when he'd given me one long, terrifying glare, he grumbled out, Come along with me, then. I'll soon see what you can do. I went in and danced on the almost dark stage, with Mr. Norman and another man looking at me, in the empty theatre where all the chairs and boxes were covered up with sheets. They seemed rather pleased with my dancing, and Mr. Norman said he would give me a chance. Then, if I caught on, he meant if people liked me, I should have a salary. But I told him I must have the salary at once as my money would only last a few more days. 
I'd spent nearly all I had getting to New York. Very well, said he. I should have thirty dollars a week to begin with, and after that we'd see what we'd see. Well, people did like my dances, and by and by Mr. Norman gave me what seemed then a splendid salary. So now you know everything that's happened, and please don't think I'd have worried you by talking so much about myself. If you hadn't asked questions, I'm afraid I oughtn't to have done it anyway. Her tone changed and became almost apologetic. She stirred uneasily in her deck chair and looked about half-dazedly, as people looked about a room that is new to them, on waking there for the first time. Why, it's grown dark, she exclaimed. This fact surprised Stephen equally. So it has, he said. By Jove, I was so interested in you, in what you were telling. I hadn't noticed. I'd forgotten where we were. I'd forgotten too, said Victoria. I always do forget outside things when I think about Sadie and the golden dream silence where I see her. All the people who were near us on deck have gone away. Did you see them go? No, said Stephen. I didn't. How odd, exclaimed the girl. Do you think so? You had taken me to the golden silence with you. Where can everybody be? She spoke anxiously. Is it late? Maybe they've gone to get ready for dinner. From a small bag she wore at her belt, American tourist fashion, she pulled out an old-fashioned gold watch of the kind that winds up with a key. Her mother's, perhaps, on which she had borrowed money to reach New York. Something must be wrong with my watch, she said. It can't be twenty minutes past eight. The same thing was wrong with Stephen's expensive repeater, whose splendor he was ashamed to flaunt beside the modesty of the girl's poor little timepiece. There remained now no reasonable doubt that it was indeed twenty minutes past eight, since by the mouths of two witnesses a truth can be established. How dreadful! exclaimed Victoria, mortified. I've kept you here all this time listening to me. Didn't I tell you I'd rather listen to you than anything else? Eating was certainly not accepted. I don't remember hearing the bugle, and I didn't hear it. I'd forgotten dinner. You had carried me so far away with you. And Sadie, added the girl, thank you for going with us. Thank you for taking me. They both laughed, and as they laughed, people began streaming out on deck. Dinner was over. The handsome Arab passed, talking with the spare, loose-limbed English parson, whom he had fascinated. They were discussing affairs in Morocco, and as they passed Stephen and Victoria, the Arab did not appear to turn. Yet Stephen knew that he was thinking of them, and not of what he was saying to the clergyman. "'What shall we do?' asked Victoria." Stephen reflected for an instant. Will you invite me to dine at your table, he asked. Maybe they'll tell us it's too late now to have anything to eat. I don't mind for myself, but for you. We'll have a better dinner than the others have had, Stephen prophesied. I guarantee it, if you invite me. Oh, do please come, she implored, like a child. I couldn't face the waiters alone. And you know I feel as if you were a friend, now 
though you may laugh at that. It's the best compliment I ever had, said Stephen, and it gives me faith in myself, which I need. And your star, which you're to find, the girl reminded him, as he unrolled her from her rug. I wish you'd lend me a little of the light from yours, to find mine by, he said half gaily, yet with a certain wistfulness which she detected under the laugh. I will, she said quickly, not a little, but half. End of chapter 5